People experience spirituality and, and feelings of religion and beatitude, etc. So uh, it's not a surprise that, that these entheogenic substances of religion have been wedded together for millennia. They absolutely do share some relationship. What the specific nature of it is, is something that scientists are working on as you and I are talking. Um, but it's profound, it's moving, um, I can tell you that I'm now 51 years old, and for the bulk of my life, I had never experienced any kind of a deep religious moment of awe until that time, that first time with, with peyote. And it completely opened my eyes to an entirely different universe. Um, the thing for people to know about peyote in particular, it's not... Uh, thing that you would take daily. Um, you honestly could do peyote once in your life and get 100% of what you need for a lifetime out of it. Some people do, in fact, do that, and, and one and done, and it's enough, and it gives them what they need. Um, but uh, in instances of, uh, like the church founder, Mana, he actually advocated quarterly. Now, in Mana's instance, he was uh, terribly injured in, in World War II, um, and uh, had a brain injury. Uh, so he had a result. brain injury as a result. So he, he was taking uh, peyote, I think in part to help mitigate some of the PTSD and traumatic effects that he was suffering from for a lifetime. Um, but the church takes a more fluid uh, approach and lets individuals really govern themselves. You're, you're going to be the best person to know what you need. Because again, they don't approach this from the medical or doctor's perspective. They approach this from the spiritual religious perspective. And, you know, your, your relationship with the universe or your deity or your sense of whatever it is that you are part of, it's intensely personal. Um, it's not a strict, extremely dogmatic, doctrine-driven religion. You tried any other entheogens? Um, well, cannabis, of course, because I, I am a card-holding cannabis medical patient. Um, and, you know, there's really not a fair comparison of cannabis and peyote. They're very, very different things. And cannabis, although psychoactive, way more mild. But there are several religions that absolutely embrace cannabis as part of religious practice. 
So my qualification, again, for cannabis use is, is medical-based because of Arizona's program, but I can tell you that I do study Eastern religion a great deal, and I am a yoga practitioner, and I instantly resonated with cannabis and yoga. And uh, for those who maybe don't know about this, um, yoga and cannabis have always gone together. Uh, there is uh, a Shiva cult out of which it arises. And um, if you go to India today, you can go and meet these people. Uh, sadhus are, are uh, big, big, big cannabis proponents, depending on the sect to which they belong, uh, and also big yoga proponents. And I have found that they really do work well together. So in that context and capacity, I have had that experience many times and can only say positive things about it. How do you parse the, di you, you're using the words religion and spirituality. How do you parse the difference between those two? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm loving that question because I still wrestle with it. I okay. saw a couple of weeks back somebody speaking and the way they described it, and thus far I kind of like what they said, is that spirituality really more speaks to your relationship with X, whatever your X is, God, universe, uh, Brahma, you name it. Whereas religion, they said, was really more about group consensus amongst humans as to what the rules would be in observation of that belief. So if that's an accurate definition, and I don't know that it is, um, that I think more resonates with me. Because I, I would consider myself personally more of a spiritual person than necessarily a religious person. You know, like I mentioned earlier in the conversation, I was raised in the Jewish tradition, but I didn't really ever embrace it. It didn't really grab me and say, you know, this is how you're going to live and, and you should love it and enjoy it, because I really didn't. Okay. So pretend for a second that I'm a skeptic and I'm listening to you talking about using, using weed as a spiritual substance, sure. using a psychoactive substance as a, as a spiritual uh, substance, uh, you're just getting high and feeling good. Why should the law protect that? Okay, love that question. So let me give you some context first about me personally, and then I'm going to answer you. So first off, I was raised somewhat conservative, my parents are super conservative, super conservative. Um, so the topic of drugs in my household never came up growing up. Uh, I'm part of the, you know, the dare generation, the just say no generation. And that was how I was raised. And those were my beliefs. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, in point of fact, although I'm a little ashamed to say this, I was for a chunk of my life Republican. So, you know, that'll tell you something too. Um, but then I came to visit cannabis through my law practice, and this was the start of my awakening. And what I found was, instead of just accepting what I was told, instead of just accepting the beliefs and culture that I was handed, which every one of us is innocently guilty of, you know, no child is raised creating their own culture, creating their own religion. They're given what their parents had and what their communities had and told, these are the, you know, the clothes you're going to wear. But 
I rejected that. I, I rejected accepting it blindly. I decided to go and do my own research and do my own experiences, which is in part what made me go to the peyote church and have that experience, which is in part what made me go and try cannabis. And what I found was profoundly what I had been told all the years I was growing up was simply not true. These are actually wonderful medicines and wonderful substances that have entheogenic quality. There is a rich history that dates millennia, if not hundreds of thousands of years. And humans have been alongside and interacted with a variety of these plant medicines the entire time. It's simply driven by a question of how wide of an aperture do you want to open when you're viewing human history? If you want to keep a really narrow aperture and say, okay, we're only going to open the aperture as wide as the Controlled Substances Act back to 1970. Well, your worldview is going to be a world filled with nothing but prohibition and derision towards these substances. But if you continue to open that aperture wider and wider and wider, you find that that wasn't true for the bulk of human history. And if you look around the planet and you just leave the United States out of your picture for just a second, suddenly you're seeing that chunks of the entire planet not only have been open to these substances, but have been all along. Uh, and, you know, you look at things like uh, ancient Greek history, the Eleusinian Mysteries, for example. 2,000 years of Greek history, including the ritualistic use of psychoactive beverage called kaikion. 2,000 years of Greek history with an entire civilization making a pilgrimage specifically to engage in the use of a psychoactive as part of a societally beneficial ritual and uh, personal improvement. Um, so my eyes opened, and then I had the experience, and I found it pleasant. I found it made me actually more spiritual than I'd ever been before in my life. Um, my level of empathy, oh my God. Uh, listen, 30 years as a lawyer is going to make you the most cynical SOB out there. One opportunity to try a, a decent psychoactive substance, you can erase 30 years of cynicism in a night. Uh, and that's what I found. So my response to anybody who's going to be a naysayer and say, oh, you just want to get high. First off, there's nothing wrong with getting high as long as you're doing it responsibly. So that's a whole other conversation to have. But secondly, unless you've had the experience, you truly don't know. And I was once one of you. And I am telling you, as a person who used to be conservative and rabidly anti-drug and, and you know, not even open-minded to trying it, you're missing out if you don't have the experience. And, and you haven't really joined the conversation until you have. And I realize that what I'm saying is basically telling people to take a leap of faith and trust, but isn't that religion? I couldn't have asked for a better concluding sentence. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So should we turn it over to you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll just do a little intro thing here. For uh, viewers of Psychedelic Alex, uh, we are doing a mutual <laughs> interview here. And now it's my turn to ask some Psychedelic Alex-based questions. So, uh, Brad, let's start off with, let's just introduce you to the audience. Um, I already know uh, that you are a PhD, 
uh, and that you study religious use, but why don't you uh, sort of embellish on that? Tell, tell everybody what your uh, specific educational training is and also how you put it to use today. Sure. sure. So I think my interest in religious studies uh, from the academic perspective dates back to when I was in uh, first or second grade and I got a book of Greek myths uh, from the school and, or the teacher assigned it. And uh, I started reading it and it was my first exposure to something other than my native Christianity. And I just remember it being fascinating. Uh, the stories stuck, struck me as, you know, intellectually as plausible as what we had learned growing up in, in Christianity. And it just sparked an interest. I've always had an interest in uh, comparative religion. As a undergraduate at UC Berkeley, I, I started to major in religious studies and I was going to do the comparative route. And I took an immersion class on Greek language uh, because that was one of the classes you had to learn. And I realized that there's no fucking way in hell I'm going to study religion comparatively because I can't do comparative. I, I can't do I can't do ancient Greek. I'm just not good with languages. So I decided, well, what am I? I'm, I'm, I'm remotely competent in English. So let's study American religious history. And I got my undergrad from Berkeley with uh, interest in uh, American religious history, more specifically sociology of religion, looking at new religious movements. Uh, I did my master's degree at Yale, where I continued to study American religious history. And then uh, I took 10 years off, actually, while my wife finished her uh, second master's degree. And I supported our family. We had a couple kids. And then um, I was actually doing mortgages. Uh, I was one of the mortgage originators who helped crash the market in 2008. And uh, when that hit, I thought that was my sign, not in any religious sense, but that was my sign. I hated, hated, hated my fucking job. And uh, but it was lucrative and we had a family. We lived in the Bay Area in California. And so I decided um, now that we're not making much money, I want to do what I really want to do. And so I applied to various schools, uh, ended up going to Florida State University, um, which is a very rigorous program for their religious studies department. Uh, they know that we don't have the name Harvard behind us or Chicago or Yale. And so to train us for the market or to prepare us for the market, they put us through the ringer. And so you, we, you know, I left Florida State with uh, publications already. Uh, I was hired um, even before I completed my PhD. I was hired at McDaniel College, which is a small liberal arts college in Maryland. Uh, I completed my PhD in American Religious History in 2015. And uh, my, broadly speaking, my research interests are American religious history. If we narrow it a little more specifically, I'm interested primarily in 20th and 21st century. If we go even closer, I'm interested in the relationship between religion and law, religion and public policy. And that opens the door for the stuff that we've been talking about with entheogens. Um, but my, I'm currently wrapping up my first full book, which is on Florida's faith-based prisons. Uh, it's a book, uh, it's called Spiritual Entrepreneurs, Florida's Faith-Based Prisons in the American Carceral State. It's coming out in a few months with UNC Press. Uh, I spent about a year and a half doing ethnographic research inside Florida's faith-based prisons, and that is the topic of my book. Neat. So before we started recording today, I had commented to you a belief that there's really probably no entheogenic-based religions inside of prisons due to the inability to access entheogens correct. behind the walls of these institutions. Is that, in fact, correct? That's absolutely correct. I mean, the closest, closest that you would get is Native Americans who, uh, in some cases, have sweat lodges. Uh, but even then, um, they'll petition for a sweat lodge in the court, or the, the prisons will say, we can't afford it, right? The prisons in uh, the United States were, what, about between 4 or 5% of the world's population. 
we incarcerate one quarter of the world's inmates. I mean, let that sink in. We're 5% of the population globally. We incarcerate one quarter of the world's inmates. We incarcerate almost one out of every three women incarcerated anywhere in the world are serving time in a US prison. That's mind boggling. The American carceral state, we use, you know, the land of the free incarcerates more people per capita than any society in human history. And obviously that raises an enormous contradiction about how free are we really? And we can get into the racial dimensions of mass incarceration, but what, you know, trying to bring this back to Native Americans and whatnot. America's uh, prisons are drastically uh, bloated and underfunded. And so it makes it very easy for conservative prison chaplains. And look back up for a second. Uh, the Pew Research study from several years ago documented that most prison chaplains are white, middle-aged, conservative, Christian males. And all religious requests have to go through the chaplains. And so, you know, if you want, um, if you want to get a different copy of the Bible, uh, you have to go through the chaplain. They'll find a volunteer to get it. If you want to have a sweat lodge, you have to go to the chaplain. And so the chaplain will have a ready answer for, you know, you say, we'd like a sweat lodge, a sweat lodge. Uh, the chaplain will say, well, we just can't afford it. We're, we're underfunded. Um, now you talk to those chaplains offline and they say, oh yeah, and I, I, I have done this. And they say, oh, the funding card is a card we can pull anytime we want. We, we see religion we don't like. Uh, we can always say we just can't afford it. And so you can imagine if Native Americans have trouble even getting a sweat lodge in, what are the chances that they're going to create an opportunity for Uniaho the Vegetal to do uh, ayahuasca or the Native American church to do peyote? Yeah. Um, in fact, at uh, so I did most of my research at Wakola Correctional Institution, which is the world's largest faith and character-based prison. And groups will come in, well, Christian groups will come in for an entire weekend. The Native American group, the Native Americans, there I think were three Native Americans incarcerated at Wakola. Their weekly religious service consisted of standing outside, lighting incense, giving a prayer to the four different directions, and the whole thing lasted about 15, sorry, 15 minutes. Well, so you can, isn't, go, isn't go that ahead. just emblematic of most American religions? Yeah. It, it's uh, <laughs> form over substance. Yeah. 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 And not that, you know, to get that you're at no point have I ever heard of anything remotely close to entheogens, entheogens in prison. Uh, there was one funny, funny example. I don't know if funny is the right word. Um, there was one interesting example where in prisons, there, you know, as we talked about when, with our interview, right, there's ambiguity over what religion and spirituality mean. And so if you're incarcerated, you're incentivized because you have religious rights. It's one of the few rights you have in prison. Sure. So you're incentivized to frame everything you do as a religious thing. And so, of course, that would lead to what we would consider abuse. So, for example, this one group of inmates said that uh, they're starting a new religion and their sacrament is wine and steak on Mondays. And so they petitioned, right? We want wine, red wine and steak as our sacraments. I think it was Mondays. It might have been some other day of the week. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, that was laughed out of the, out of, uh, out of the prison. Uh, but, you know, they're not even going to get something as simple as, as wine. I will say one thing real quick. Um, at the faith-based facilities where I researched, the Catholics and I believe the Episcopalians were allowed to bring in, I want to say it was one ounce of red wine for communion. Hmm. And then it was just the host was just barely dipped because it wasn't that much liquid. <laughs> so it's that hard to get, you know, for Catholics to get an ounce of red wine in. No prison is going to go near 
antigens. Yeah. Well, dub- doubling back to something we spoke about earlier with um, Rifra and, and Sherbert and, and you right. know, compelling interest arguments, my legal research suggests that it's impossible or near impossible to actually start a new religion in the United States that can incorporate entheogens. Um, the, the case law that's sort of developed around this is looking for examples of, of these rituals and behaviors and entheogens already existing. Um, you couldn't, for example, um, and I'll give you the example of LSD. There was a, a, a church that was created around the use of LSD, and, and the court <laughs> said absolutely not. Uh, which, which church was this? Um, only because you're asking me that question. Give me a second. It will come to me. Um, or, or the time frame. Yeah, it's pre-Rifra, and it's, oh, God. <laughs> they, they, uh, they call their officiants boohoos. Okay, yes. It's so, um, Arthur Kleps. Yeah, Kleps, Kleps, the, the, the neo-Kleptonian okay. church. Thank you, God. That's it. Is my nose bleeding? Because that was me thinking really hard. Yeah, so the Neo-Kleptonian Church had uh, a couple early run-ins, and this was, I think, around 1970-ish. Uh, and and yeah, the court was like, absolutely not. There's no religious sincerity here whatsoever. And mm-hmm. there's really no cases that have come around since then that I'm aware of that right. have done a 180 on that, that precedential trend. I was so, asking who it was because... You had Timothy Leary with the League of Spiritual Discovery, LSD. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that he ever took any legal actions to do that. But then you had Kleps who did. And Kleps wasn't a good representative because he was kind of a pedophile and not yeah. necessarily the best uh, yeah. best, uh, yeah. the best representative for the cause, uh, so to speak. They still have a website up, by the way. And so far as I know, they are still accepting new members. <laughs> at least the website oh, says so. I, I, I may at some point uh, reach out and buy the T-shirt because I think at least I've got that. That'd be cool. Um, okay. But but now let me let me double-double uh, back and sure. mention – let me pull this out just so the viewers at home can see. Uh, I mentioned this to you earlier, which is John Allegro's book. So I have – been ruminating on on entheogens and religion and how do you get these things introduced or reintroduced and for the viewers at home who don't know about allegro allegro is a linguist and he was the translator of the copper scroll and wrote this book called the sacred mushroom and the cross and he's one of if not the original proponent of the notion that early judaism and early christianity actually was born out of uh, mushroom cults, these entheogenic-based uh, groups. And I have to wonder if a court would tolerate either Jews or Christians claiming as part of their res- religious historicity the ability to experience and explore archaic versions of observation. And then when you couple that notion with the reality that there are several denominations of Christianity that do embrace entheogens. Um, you know, the, the ayahuasca churches, for example, are, are a fine example. Um, I've not heard of anybody trying to revive old practices and, and base their claim on historical records. And then another book I've got here 
that I think is more popular because it's more contemporary than Allegro's is the Psychedelic Gospels by uh, Jerry and Julie Brown, which I'll again throw up on the screen. Mm-hmm. And for those not familiar with, with the Brown's book, what they did, and by the way, I'm insanely jealous, they basically went church hopping around Europe. And their goal was to look for iconography. And the book actually contains several very lovely color plates on the inside of photos from inside of these churches. And time and again, they're finding um, either sculptures or, or paintings or stained glass windows that very plainly show these psychedelic substances, particularly mushroom. And, you know, I, this is beyond my skill set. I'm, I'm not a historian or, or an archaeologist, but, you know, this, to my eyes, looks like there may be a legitimate there there. So mm-hmm. I would be really curious to see if there are arguments to be made of a revival of an archaic practice and have it pass muster in a court where the court would say, yes, as part of any recognized religious observation, you are permitted to explore and experience that religion in all of its permutation, provided it meets that compelling interest test espoused in RIFRA. Mm-hmm. Have you encountered anything of that nature in your in your studies? No, I haven't. But let me tell you what I'm my, where my thought process went while you were talking. Please. Um, a lot of the claims about um, about ancient Judaism, ancient Juda- Jewish mystics, ancient Christian mystics, as using entheogens is subject to some degree to, to a lot of interpretation, right? And so, whether or not the history is accurate is no longer the issue because of the Hobby Lobby case, the Green family. Remember the Hobby Lobby case? Sure, that, absolutely. Okay. So the, the court said, okay, so the Hobby Lobby believed that um, pregnancy prevention programs were abortifacients. And that tip, typically contradicted the scientific definition of abortifacients. But the Supreme Court said, well, it doesn't really matter. They have, whether or not it is an abortifacient, the Greens believe, they sincerely believe that these are abortifacients, and we have to take them at their word on yes. word for it. And so by that logic, and, and we'll see, as we talked about earlier, the Supreme Court is in a tremendous amount of flux right now. We'll see how the Trump court would, would interpret this. But if the court stays true to their logic, uh, the court would have to take a claim. I have a sincerely held religious belief that ancient Jews and Christians use this psilocybin mushroom or something version of it. And therefore, I am continuing that. Uh, if the court applied the same logic that, that they did to the Green family in the Hobby Lobby case, that would be a legal argument. Does that answer yeah. your? Does that remotely answer your question? A- absolutely, yes. And and uh, actually, you very much encourage me because that is my belief as well. Because um, you're you're right. The the sincerity of belief, although gauged, really belongs to the the observer, not to the court to decide. You know, how sincere is your sincerity? I mean, that's an absurd thing for a court to rule upon. Um, and that got me thinking also, since, since it's difficult to create something brand new, the revival of something old, I think, stands a better shot in the courts. So, for example, if somebody wanted to revive an ancient Hellenistic religion and uh, make the argument that, you know, Kaikian's part of that ritual, because it absolutely was, I think they'd have a fair shot at it. Uh, you know, well, if you, you'd have to punch yeah. through at least three courts to get to the Supreme Court where that's ultimately sure. where it's going to be decided. But assuming right. you had the will and the cash to do it, because that's expensive, 
um, there might be some basis for it. Right. If I can say up front, as a scholar of religion, I don't feel it's my, uh, it's, it, you know, you asked me earlier, you, did I, did I have a, my degree was in theology and I made the distinction that uh, theologians have a stake in the truth of their religious beliefs. As a scholar, I study the history of theologians. I want to know when a certain truth becomes an idea as opposed to, you know, a certain notion of truth. When did people start believing this in what context, et cetera. And so applying that, I don't necessarily think it's my job as a scholar, at least not as I do scholarship, to advocate for or against entheogens. But in terms of would this strategy work? Absolutely. I mean, it would have more, uh, I don't know that it would work, but it would have more legal legs, so to speak, if you say we're reviving something, we have a historical precedent. If you remember, did you see the John, when John Oliver created his own religion and uh, the comedian? Yeah, and so he went through that list where he said, here, you know, According to the IRS, these are the things that we have to do to be considered a religion. We have to have a meeting. We're doing that now. Check, right? Yep. And so it literally is more or less a check, you know, a checklist. And one of that, one of the questions they ask you is, what is your history? And specifically, the DEA has issued a document. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it. And like, I think it's a three or four page, maybe five page yeah. document. That's the application to be able to use entheogens, uh, entheogens for religious use. Yes. And one of the questions is, what is your history? They want to make sure that you're, we're not just two guys sitting at a bar one night and be like, God, wouldn't it be cool if we got fucked up tonight on mushrooms? Yeah. Uh, we need a history. And so there's even a legal apparatus outside of the Supreme Court to, uh, to, to encourage you to look at that history. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for the benefit of viewers at home, just to, to fill in some of the blanks there, um, if you do have a, a religious belief in your right or, or will to use entheogens, you literally can apply to the DEA for consent to do it. Now, understand, the DEA is, in, in that regard, frankly, a pain in the ass, uh, and they're always looking to find ways to tell you no, uh, but there's absolutely a form you can fill out, you can download right off the DEA website, and if you also want to see historical reference to other people's applications, uh, there are several that you can find off of Arrowid's website. It's arrowid.org. If you're not familiar with it, it's hands down the number one website on the planet for anything psychedelic. Uh, they do a tremendous job of aggregating data. So you can go and actually rummage through these, these DEA applications, all of which have failed. Uh, so at least you can see how not to do it and, and where people went wrong. Um, Will you spell Arrowid? Yes, yeah, so uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's not a word people would necessarily know. E R O W I D, arrowid.org. Uh, highly recommend it. Um, also, off of my uh, website, which is psychedelicalex.com, I have a links page which lists a number of different psychedelics organizations. There is a link to Arrowid off of there as well. So please do help yourself. Uh, and also, on your point about there being criteria that uh, the DEA looks for. Uh, in my book, I actually list uh, all of those along with the, the legal uh, arguments and case law and citations. So you can really gauge uh, out of the book, you know, what are you doing that matches and what are you doing that doesn't. So if you do want to make a run for it at the DEA and see if you can get that consent, you, you've got some resources to turn to to help you in that effort. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to see somebody with... Uh, some genuine will and, and the resource behind it to try to push for some sort of an actual legalized 
iteration of what uh, Terence McKenna called the archaic revival. Because I think there is an argument to be made there, and I think it could succeed if we had the right plaintiffs. And the right court. Uh, well, ultimately, it's the Supreme Court, but yeah, I mean, right. you'd want to file that one probably in Northern California so that you could get the Ninth Circuit, which is, you know, no mystery there, way more liberal than a lot of other uh, circuits. But, you know, you always want to head to the Supreme Court with the winning <laughs> ruling, not not the losing ruling. It just helps. Uh, it's no guarantee, uh, but it helps. But again, you know, as we said earlier, I, I think RIFRA really did help give entheogens some additional legs and argument. Absolutely. Or I believe they call it Hawaska. 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 Yeah. H-O-A-S-C-A. Hawaska. Right. Um, Hawaska, ayahuasca, same, same tea. It's just different communities call it different things. Yeah. And, and again, for the folks at home, um, the ayahuasca churches principally hail out of Brazil and uh, its dominant European language is Portuguese and Portuguese pronounces things a little bit differently than, than uh, the other uh, European languages. Uh, I've had some Portuguese people in my life over the years, and uh, my Spanish is almost useless on them, So, <laughs> which is a frustration because my Spanish is already terrible. So my, por- <laughs> my Portuguese is worse. Um, all right, so what else would my folks want to know from you? Um, let, let's talk about your career track because part, part of sure. my show explores not merely the legalities of psychedelics, but also places where people could plug in and maybe make a life or career. You know, for me, oh. I just, I got lucky that there happens to be a law practice available where I can do this, but uh, right. I have lots of friends who, who are biologists who work in labs and in, in the cannabis universe, for example, right now it's kind of a hot ticket thing to be a biologist or a researcher right. because there's plenty of that going on. So right. in, in the religious side, where, where could people, if they were wanting to pursue a career, where, where would you recommend that they go and how would they get there? I said, well, my, my experience is with academia and I, would, I, I am steering everyone far, far away from it. Uh, the jobs right now are few and far between. Uh, the, year I have, the year I was hired, 2015, there were literally five jobs nationwide for my field. Um, that's not, that's five tenure track jobs. Um, and it's only shrunk since then. The people were, we're graduating by a matter of, I don't know, 10, 20 fold more people than there are jobs. Um, so at the getting a PhD to be a professor in the field of religious studies, uh, is it's almost non-existent right now. Uh, so I would caution everyone do not follow my career path. Uh, don't go get your PhD in religious studies expecting to, uh, to get a tenure track job. Uh, you can get your PhD in religious studies and get involved in a lot of nonprofit work. Uh, a lot of my friends who have their PhDs in the field are uh, working at private organizations um, or doing nonprofit work. Uh, that does seem to be, there's some, um, there does seem to be some employability there, but that, that it's, it's, it's not looking good for people who are graduating now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're kind of confirming the conversation that I had in my head senior year of college. As I mentioned earlier, I was looking at, do I go PhD or do I go lawyer route? And yeah, the PhD financial prospects just scared me to death. Yeah, although they've only gotten worse. Yeah, although I will say uh, these days, I I also really honestly couldn't recommend law, Uh, you know, for for young people uh, who are, are, you know, maybe in college right now and thinking what's a good future career. Here's what you need to know about the law. There is a massive amount of change happening right now in in this career, including 
the the practice opening up to allow non-lawyers to actually own law firms. Uh, that oh, wow. that literally that. just happened here in my home state of Arizona. Uh, our, our Supreme Court has decided to change some of the ethics rules and now allow non-lawyers to own interests in law firms. And I think over the next decade, we're going to see law turn into what insurance did to medicine. And, yeah. and I greatly fear that. And then also the rise of artificial intelligence, right. which is already definitely being used by the bigger law firms on the bigger cases. So the opportunities for really stellar careers, I think they'll remain, but I think they'll become fewer and far between. So if yeah. you're dedicated to going into law, I would really recommend you look at a niche that, that you can occupy that ecosystem, but also you constantly having to be looking to make sure that that ecosystem that you're occupying is going to endure. Because, you know, it's, it's just like evolution. If your ecosystem changes, you either evolve and adapt or you go extinct. And I've, I've yeah. seen that happen to other practitioners. You know, I got really fortunate that in, in what I hope is the last 10 or 20 years of my career here, that cannabis opened up and psychedelics opened up. You know, I'm, I'm closing in on nice. 52. I really don't want to be working deep into my 60s. So I'm kind of thinking I'm in my last 10 years. There's plenty here for me to do for the next 10 years. But beyond that, eh, who knows? Around. So I, I really okay. appreciate Good. the time. Uh, I will tell you this. I've enjoyed the conversation immensely. Immensely. And uh, so. we, should, we should do this again in not too distant future. So one thing I'm going to do for my final episode, I'm actually going to, uh, for the final episode of the podcast, I'm actually going to start uh, a religion by filling out the paperwork and I'm going to submit the the DEA form uh, for psilocybin. Uh, They're going to decline it and I'll close the religion, but um, I think it would make for a hell of an episode to create a religion and jump through the hoops just to be declined. Uh, So That'll be the last episode, I think. Okay. But I'm, I'm going to try to do some of what you're talking about. So uh, I will become data for you at a future point. Okay. Well, let's talk seriously about that for a moment because I, I am quite serious. that I have been starting to examine this question because I think there is an argument to be made. And, yeah, no, I can and, agree more. And I think if, it's, if it succeeds, you basically open up psilocybin mushrooms to literally everyone everywhere, strictly yeah. on religious which is why basis. It won't, which is why it won't happen. Right. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but you know, yeah. then, then fine. Let the really conservative people and let's be candid. It's the Republicans, although there are right. some Democrats too who are conservative about this. Um, but they're going to have to face up to the inconsistencies in their own religious arguments, uh, right. which is why I was kind of thrilled to show you the Allegro book and the Brown book. Uh, and you'd mentioned earlier, you hadn't even been aware of the Allegro book. Um, mm-hmm. I highly recommend you read it. It's fascinating and it's well-written. Uh, and, and you commented earlier that you didn't want to go the theology route because of the, the linguistic challenges. And that is Allegro's forte. And that's like the first two chapters. He is strictly talking about linguistics and, mm-hmm. and how this enabled him to go back to these very ancient source texts and now reinterpret what at his time was contemporary belief based on the truer language from the original sources that, you know, people read today. Um, So I I think you would totally dig it. And point of fact, I I would even recommend you staple a copy of his book to your DEA application as one of your arguments. Nice. 
Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. very much. I'm applying for funding um, so I can get some funding so I can go do some of the field research for this again, post COVID. Um, but if I get me that, I'll, I'll let you know. Thank you.